Let us pray. Vene Sancte Spiritus. Come Holy Spirit. Take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So, um, recently read, I read a pretty interesting story, a true story. In 1904, a 31-year-old physicist in England named John Butler Burke did an experiment at his lab in Cambridge. Burke was interested, he was intrigued by the generative possibilities of a glowing, newly discovered element that Marie and uh, Pierre Curie had named radium. It radiated, it emitted a strange kind of energy. And that energy created some new possibilities. For example, if you mixed it with phosphorus, it would glow in the dark. So Burke was pretty interested in these uh, creative possibilities. What he did in his lab was he made a liquid solution he added a pinch of radium salt, and he left it overnight. And when he came back to the lab in the morning, there was a cloudy layer on top of the solution. He drew some of it off, he slathered it on a slide, and he looked at it under a microscope. And he saw tiny specks that were unlike anything else that he had ever seen. And so he began to observe these tiny specks, their shapes, their movements, their sizes. He drew pictures. He made hypotheses. And he pretty quickly concluded that in an unprecedented alchemy, he had turned inorganic matter into organic matter. He had created life. Well, he wrote up his findings, and he published his paper, and very quickly, he became very Famous. He was invited to give prestigious lectures. He was feted at great parties where his colleagues sang songs they had written about him. The press called it one of the most remarkable achievements in the history of science. He was widely seen as the equivalent of, of Charles Darwin. But the way that science works is you have to be able to replicate results. And it turns out that Burke should have done a few more experiments, and he should have been a little more careful. Another scientist did try to replicate his results. This scientist was a little more rigorous. He used uh, tap water, like Burke had used, but he also thought to use, in a separate experiment, distilled water. And in distilled water, that radium salt produced nothing. It turns out Burke had not created a primitive form of life in his laboratory. And uh, that's why none of us have ever heard about John Butler Burke, because when word got out, he very quickly faded into obscurity. But here's the thing. Burke was wrestling with not only some intriguing questions, but some really significant questions, like what is life, and where does it come from, and how is it created? And those are still really significant questions for us, aren't they? And now it's not just biological explorations, although there are plenty of those still going on. Uh, now it's technological explorations too, right? I mean, as engineers are creating artificial intelligence, uh, large language machines, we are starting to wonder if at some point AI is gonna become 
sentient, if it's going to become self-aware, if it is going to come to life, if it's going to become like humans. We wonder, we wonder if our dreams, uh, and more often our, uh, if the dreams and fears of science fiction writers will come true. You know, it was in 1818 that uh, Mary Shelley wrote her novel about the monster that Dr. Frankenstein brought to life in his lab, a cautionary tale. More recently, uh, I was thinking about the, uh, the series Star Trek Voyager. Uh, there was an AI hologram, a medical hologram in that series called simply The Doctor. And often in the episodes, they wrestled with the question, had the doctor become sentient? Had the doctor in some sense become human? So what is life? Where does it come from? How is it created? This reading today from Acts chapter 2 gets at those questions. So this story comes after Easter, it comes after the resurrection. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, which we read from last week, Jesus appeared to his followers, and before he ascended into heaven, he told them to wait in Jerusalem, to wait for power that would come upon them from the Holy Spirit. And now here in Acts chapter 2, we're told, suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, filled the house, divided tongues as a fire appeared and rested on each of them. They began to speak in other languages. We had a fine performance of that just a few minutes ago. Even more, though, people from every place under heaven all understood each other. No wonder they were amazed. So, as Paul has said, this story marks the beginning of the church. It marks the birth of the church. It marks the moment at which the church came to life. Before this, the first followers of Jesus had lived in fear. In John 20, we're told that they had gathered in an upper room and locked the door because they were afraid. Before this, you might remember Peter, the most uh, vocal of Jesus' followers. His courage had wilted. It had shriveled when Jesus was arrested. He denied three times that he even knew who Jesus was. But after the coming of the Spirit, after this infusion of life, it's Peter in the next verses of chapter 2 who boldly speaks to the gathered crowd there. And those first followers of Jesus coalesce into a community. At the end of chapter 2, we're told, all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They'd sell their possessions and distribute the proceeds to each as they had need. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts. The Spirit brings the church to life. And that's the story that runs throughout the Scriptures. The Spirit bringing life. It goes all the way back to Genesis. In the beginning, a wind from God swept over the deep and called forth creation from the primordial chaos. And the Spirit of God breathed life into the dust and created humans. In the psalm that we heard earlier, that we read earlier, Psalm 104, the writer celebrates God for the wonders of life around us and within us. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. In the Gospels, it's that same spirit, after the chaos of Good Friday, after the silence of Holy Saturday, who breaks the bonds of the tomb on Easter Sunday and raises the crucified Christ from death to new life. And that spirit, here in Acts chapter 2, births the church. In the chaotic story of Acts chapter 2, the spirit brings the church to life. So I've been thinking this week about the difference it makes uh, to believe, to hope, to trust uh, that beyond our human abilities, 
It is the Spirit who creates life from uh, and even through chaos. Because there is plenty of chaos in our lives, and a fair bit of it of our own making. Uh, for, all for all of our inventiveness, for all of the wonders of this technological age, there is a lot of uncertainty, a lot of trepidation about what artificial intelligence might unleash. And most worrisome, it's the engineers who are creating this stuff who seem to be most worried about it. Uh, for all the advances, for all the uh, prosperity of our global economy, we are changing the climate. We are creating chaos, and especially for people who are already quite vulnerable. And even if you're doing your best to avoid all of that news, uh, there is plenty of chaos in our daily living, right? Just the pace of life, the busyness of life, the relentlessness of life, uh, the uncertainties that we live with. There are moments that we feel in control. My guess is there are more moments when we feel like we can't quite keep all the, bear, uh, all the balls in the air at the same time. Amidst that chaos, the scriptures tell us that the Spirit has the power to create life. That's the good news. The good news is that life comes from God. We're not just evolutionary, uh, the evolutionary outcome of random selection. Life isn't generated in a lab or in a supercomputer. Life comes from God. And that good news makes a difference. I've been reading a really interesting book. In fact, it's where that story of John Butler Burke comes from. It's called Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive by Carl Zimmer. Carl Zimmer's a writer uh, for the New York Times. And in the book, he asks those questions. What is life? Uh, where does it come from? How is it created? And one of, the, one of the things that becomes clear in the book is that it's actually really hard to define life. What is life? It's, it's also really hard, as it turns out, to define death. It seems obvious, but it's kind of hard to put a hard uh, a line in there and say, this is alive and this is dead. But there's a lot of definitions that emerge, and he notes one of them. This came in 1992 at a meeting at NASA, and they came up with this definition. Life is a self-sustained chemical system capable of undergoing Darwinian evolution. Sounds like a bunch of scientists, doesn't it? Life is a self-sustained chemical system. Life is made of chemicals, and nothing particularly special about living chemicals. See, if, if that's your definition of life, it seems to me that makes a big difference, because it means that life is neutral, that the universe doesn't really care what happens to us or anything one way or the other, any more than the ocean cares whether we sink or swim. To believe that that is how life is constituted makes a difference, because the way we live in the world depends on the kind of world that we think we live in. And when we think we live in a world that is neutral, that has no direction or purpose or inherent value, a world that doesn't care, then it seems to me we are much more prone uh, to look out for ourselves, to react in fear, to protect what we've got, and resort to violence when we have to. The scriptures, though, tell tell us that we live in a different kind of world, a world brought to life by God. We live in a world that was created by and through and for love, a world that means for life to be abundant. It means for all of us and all of creation to flourish. The world isn't neutral. The world has a purpose and a trajectory. 
and a future. And if we can believe that, if we can hope, if we can trust that that's the kind of world that we live in, it changes everything. Terrible things still happen. There is still far too much pain and loss and grief. And we live within systems and structures that privilege some of us and oppress others. But we trust that within the fabric of the universe is the creative power of God that means to heal and redeem and to make whole. That we are not left alone. We are not left to our own devices. We trust that even when life is chaotic, when we've come to a dead end, when we have no idea what comes next, we trust that the Spirit can even then breathe new life and new hope and new courage and new wisdom into us. We trust that we live in a world in which God's Spirit can, in the words of Paul from Romans, give life to the dead and call into existence the things that do not exist. We trust that we live in a world in which God is breathing life into the beloved community, which the church is a part, the kind of community that can bear witness to what God intends for all of creation. So back in 1904, uh, John Butler Burke experimented with this strange energy of radium. Turns out radium does not have the power to create life but I still admire his curiosity, and I still admire his commitment to explore. We, who follow in the wake of this early church that we've read about in Acts chapter 2, we have come to trust that the Spirit is the source of life. And so we are called to explore the generative possibilities of the Spirit. We are called to experiment with the strange energy of the Spirit. What does it look like for us to live our lives in love rather than to react to our fears, whatever the particular fears are that you live with? What does it mean here and now to believe that the arc of the universe is long, but that it bends toward justice, that it has a direction, that there is a particular future that, will be our, that we are being drawn toward? How do our perspectives have to shift in order to us, for us to see everyone, not as competitors or commodities or threats, but to see every other person as a neighbor? How can we read the news about a war differently if we believe in Jesus' way of peace? What's it look like to be hopeful, even if we are pessimistic? What's it look like to be hopeful in the face of global climate change. We're called to experiment with this strange energy of the Spirit. So, the takeaway for me is, as followers of Jesus, what experiments can we, what experiments can you run with the strange energy of the Spirit? In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit first brought this community of disciples to life, They gathered uh, and they shared a meal. And that's what we're going to do this morning. This morning we're going to share the bread and cup of communion. And so in these next moments of silence as we prepare to come to the table, um, open your heart, open your mind, open your soul to the Spirit. Breathe deeply. Breathe out uh, whatever anxieties you're carrying. Uh, Breathe out whatever burdens you want to let go of. And breathe in. 
Breathe in grace. Breathe in peace. Breathe in the life-giving love of the Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.